We're beginning a new seven-week series this weekend. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches that are uh, mentioned there. I don't know about you folks. Uh, I don't know when the last time was that you read the book of Revelation. I've read it a bunch of times. And I confess that a lot of the times when I read it, I wouldn't know what to do with it. There's all this stuff going on in this book. You've got winged creatures with eyes flying all over the place. You've got a dragon that's rampaging. You've got uh, all these weird numbers and symbols. And, and I'd read it and I'd say, this, this is kind of like a cross between a Wizard of Oz and Star Wars. And I can't make sense of it. I don't know what's what. It's a very strange book. But it is a book that can be understood. The first verse of the book of Revelation starts out the revelation from Jesus Christ. It's from Jesus. But it's also the revelation of Jesus. It's about Jesus. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. It's an unveiling of who Jesus really is. A lot of folks read Revelation looking for signs of the times. But it's not really about the end times. It speaks about the end times, but it's not about the end times as a major theme. The big theme, the big idea about Revelation is Jesus. Eugene Peterson says that the book of Revelation is God's final words in Scripture about everything. And Jesus is God's final word to us. It's the unveiling of Jesus, the pulling back of the curtain so that we see Jesus for who he really is. But unlike the Wizard of Oz, when you pull back the curtain, you see there's not much there. When you pull back the curtain on Jesus, he's everything. Jesus is everything. He's the one who's at the beginning, who with the Father and the Spirit created the universe. He's the one who laid down his life and took it up again. He's the one who reconciled us to God. He's the one who holds the keys to death and Hades, Scripture says. He's the one who opened eternity for a lost and broken creation. And he's the one who's making all things new, making all things right. He's the one who unmasked all the powers of the world, said your power is limited, your power is false. Because he's the one who's king of kings and lord of lords. He's the one who dethroned the prince of this world, the dragon, Satan. It's Jesus' throne. He's making all things new, and he's making all things right. And we get a picture of Jesus like we've never seen before in a book of Revelation. It's a book for us because Jesus is revealing himself to us through it. Most New Testament scholars think the book of Revelation was written near the end of the reign of Emperor Domitian, somewhere around A.D. 95. There are a lot of reasons they think that, but a lot of it has to do with the references to persecution in the book. Domitian was the, was the emperor who expanded what was called the imperial cult. He, he made a law, a decree, that said that, we were to, that everyone was, was to call him, refer to him as uh, Dominus et Deus Noster, our Lord and God. Dominus et Deus Noster, our Lord and God. He wanted people to refer to him as God. Now for the Christians of that day and Christians of this day, that's a problem. 
It's a huge problem because we know and they knew there's only one God. Jesus is Lord and God. So very many Christians said, no way. They would not bow before Domitian's throne and call him Lord and God, and they suffered for it. There were some who bowed under pressure and fell away, at least for a time. And the book of Revelation gives clues about that, gives kind of allusions to that as you go through the book. Revelation was written to the seven churches, to seven churches in the province of the Roman province of Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey. And that's where the emperor cult was most strongly embraced and where persecution against Christians was most intense. Revelation was written to a group of people facing a lot of pressure, facing persecution. And it's important to know that as we read the book. The background, the history, the setting of the book gives us clues as to how to read the book of Revelation. It's important to note that the whole book of Revelation, not just chapters two and three, were written to the seven churches. It says so right in the first chapter as uh, as, uh, Malia read it to us, and it says it throughout the book. It's written to the whole church. Revelation 2.7 says, whoever is here to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It wasn't so, we're gonna talk about the church of Ephesus today, but it was meant to be read by all seven churches, and there's something important about that number seven. It's a symbolic number in the Bible. When... uh, We know that there are more than seven churches in uh, Asia Minor at that time. There are a lot more than seven churches. So when Revelation addresses precisely seven churches, it's a way of letting us know that it's really speaking to all the churches because number seven is a number of wholeness and completion and perfection. It's written to all the churches. That's what it meant. And all of the churches that received that letter knew that that's what it meant. They would have known this, and we ought to know this today. So Revelation was written to all the churches in the first century, and it's written to all the churches in every century after. It's written to us here in the 21st century. It's a letter written for us. The book is written for us. It's not just a book about the end times or the last few years before the end times. It's a book that was meant for the church from beginning to end. Every generation of church, there's a word of the Lord to all of us, regardless of where we are in history or in geography. Today we're going to focus on uh, the church in Ephesus, and I want to begin reading, however, with chapter 1, verse 19. So I'm going to go from chapter 1, verse 19, to chapter 2, verse 7. If you would, would you please turn with me there? The map, by the way, kind of gives you, I should have mentioned that. The map, you see Patmos. John is in exile in Patmos because of his faithfulness to Jesus. And he's in in the middle of the, not the middle, but he's in the Mediterranean Sea. Up up to the north and east, about 40 miles is the church of Ephesus. And then you see a group of churches going up uh, further north and turning inland. That's the seven churches. Um... 
But anyway, getting back to Revelation chapter 119. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Commentators aren't quite sure what the seven angels are. Some people think it just means human leaders. And others think it means the actual angels, guardian angels. I'm convinced personally that it means guardian angels, that all the churches have a guardian angel, that Journey Church has a guardian angel. But continuing, chapter two, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have treated, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Lord, would you give us each ears to hear what you're saying to us today? We know a lot about the church at Ephesus. It's a church that experienced extraordinary growth, saw many miracles, all kinds of amazing things happened in that church. It was led by the early church's best leaders, Paul and Timothy and John. It had great influence in the city of Ephesus. It actually changed the politics of that city, the life of that city. And it had influence beyond. It, was, it had a refuta- reputation for having its act together. It was seen as a model church. And here in, in uh, Revelation 2, Jesus gives us some reasons for that. He commends the church for their perseverance in doing good, good deeds and for their hard work. They were energetic in doing the work of the gospel. He commends them too for knowing and defending biblical truth. 
for exposing false doctrine and teaching. There's a place for that in this world today. There's all kinds of false doctrine and teaching. There are all kinds of people claiming to have a word from God. And it's a false word. It's not God's word at all. There's a room for defending the truth of the scriptures and knowing the scriptures well. There's a, lot of, there's a place for that, a deep place for that in our world. And so this is a church that knows what and why it believes. It's zealous for the truth. It takes the truth seriously. It's rooted in good doctrine and refuses to be led away by false teachers who claim spiritual authority and lead people to destruction ultimately. Jesus applauds them for persevering, for enduring in faith in the midst of great hardship. They press on, they don't give up. They don't back off. And they do all this for Jesus' name, for the name, for the sake of his name. They want Jesus to be honored, to be glorified, to be worshiped. They want Jesus to be followed. There's a lot about this church in Ephesus that churches today need to learn from and follow, to emulate. And the words of affirmation that Jesus gives them are words that we today also need to hear as we strive to persevere in faith in the midst of difficult times. I want you to notice two things about what's said in these first few verses. One of the things it says is that Jesus walks among the lampstands. He walks among the churches, in other words. Jesus is not sort of up in a cloud somewhere. He walks in the midst of his people. He walks in the midst of his church. Jesus is in his church right now, walking in our midst by his spirit. We don't go through the stuff of life, the hard stuff of life, alone. We're never alone. Jesus is always with us. He is, as Matthew says, Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's God with us. He will never leave us or forsake us, Scripture says. Sometimes it's easy to feel like you're alone and no one sees and no one cares. Sometimes churches as a whole can feel that way. You need to know that you're never alone. Jesus walks among us. And Jesus knows, it says. He says, I know your hard work. I know your good deeds. Jesus knows. He sees everything. He, he knows about every act of devotion that we do. Jesus is the one who, when this widow, old widow, walked up to the offering plate in the temple, he knows that when she saw he saw her put her two pennies in. He knows and he saw And he received it and said, this woman's going to be remembered. And she is remembered. 
He knew what it was for her to put those two pennies in there. He saw it. He knows. Jesus knows what's in our hearts. When Jesus is walking down the road and he sees this little man sitting up in a tree looking down, Jesus knows that it's Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector, hated, despised by everyone around him because he sold out to the Romans for a few bucks, maybe a lot of bucks, but he sold out. But Jesus also knows that there's a hunger deep in his soul. He wants something more, and he's up in that tree looking down because he knows Jesus is going to come by that way, and he just wants to see Jesus, and he's hoping that Jesus really is who people say he is. Jesus knows that, and he stops, and he calls out to this man. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to be at your house today. He knows. Jesus is the one who knows the cries in our hearts. He's the one who knows the yearnings in our soul. He knows. Be encouraged by that. He sees everything. He remembers everything. He knows everything. Every one of your acts of faith and devotion and love and sacrifice. Let that encourage you to persevere. Now, all of this is really, really great stuff that Jesus has been talking about. But then we get to verse 4 and 5. And Jesus says something that it, it ought to make your heart stop. It is so jarring. It seems almost surreal. He says to, he says to them, I hold this against you. You are forsaken the love you had at first. Return, repent, turn back to the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will remove your lampstand. I want to be clear here what Jesus is saying. He's not saying to the church at Ephesus, I see some good things in you. Yeah, pretty good stuff. And I see some areas where there's a need for improvement. He's saying something much stronger than that. He's saying, yes, you have some good stuff, but if you don't repent, if you don't return back the love you had at first, your light's going to be snuffed out. You're going to die. He's saying, you're on life support and you're at the critical juncture and if you don't do something different, if you don't return to what you did at first, the love you had at first, you're over. It's done. Good deeds, hard work, sound teaching, right doctrine, endurance under great pressure, all of these things don't matter if you don't have love. You don't matter if you don't have love. The Apostle Paul says a very similar thing in 1 Corinthians 13. Allow me to read that. So here's Paul. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, 
but do not have love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I have nothing. I gain nothing. There's a lot of stuff that's good stuff. A lot of stuff that's important. Truth is important. Doctrine is important. But Jesus is saying, without love, all of that stuff gains nothing. Love is what really, really, really matters. We are evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians. We believe that the Bible is the word of God, that it's trustworthy, and we do all that we can to know the scriptures. and live out what the scriptures say. In our culture, in our culture, Christians seem to be known, Bible-believing Christians seem to be known more for what we're against. And there are some things we ought to be against. But we're known more for what we're against than what we're for. We're known more for what we hate than for what we love. And there's some caricature there. But there's a germ of truth to it too. There's some truth to that. We're known more for what we hate than for what we love. Truth matters. But in scripture, it's always truth in love that counts. Truth in love that we're called for. I don't know what happened to this church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 1, 15, Paul says, I've heard of your great love for all the saints. This is a church that loved. This is a church that loved they loved Jesus, they loved God, they loved one another, they loved people around them. This is a church that knew love, experienced love, expressed love. This is a church that loved, and somewhere down the line, maybe 30 years later when Revelation was written, somewhere along the line, they kind of lost it. They fell away from it. They, for, they forsook it. They had it. And they let it go. They let it slip through their hearts, so to speak. It can happen to any person. It can happen to any church. Sometimes our very zeal for the truth brings that about. We can care about the truth so much 
that we see people who don't believe what we believe as enemies. We don't see them as people to love and to listen to and connect with. We see them as enemies to to sort of defeat and crush. We can get rude, we can get argumentative, we can debate. We can get to the point where we just get hard-hearted. We can, we can just get hard. Sometimes exhaustion can stifle our love. We just get tired. You love and you love and you love and you love. And then you just decide, I can't love anymore. And so you stop. We live in a world that we live in a world, we live in a neighborhood, we we meet in a neighborhood, we live in a city, we live in a nation that's awash in need. There's all kinds of need all over the place. And uh, it seems like almost every week here at Journey, somebody stands up on this platform, a lot of times it's me, and says, here's another need. Here's something we need to respond to. And I want to say two things. The first thing I want to say is thank you to all of you. Because week after week after week, you do respond. There's an immensity of generosity and love that flows out of this church, and I want to say thank you. Don't take that for granted at all. I want to say thank you. I also want to say that neither Jesus nor I are asking you to give what you don't have. We're asking you to give what you do have. So maybe what you have is a couple dollars. We're asking you to give that as God leads, as God leads, as God directs. We're asking you to give because the, re- the needs are real. And we know that Jesus is called us to care about people around us. But give as God directs. Maybe you, you know, I know a lot of us, probably all of us have really busy lives. And sometimes it feels like we can barely breathe through the day. We don't even have time to breathe. So maybe you only have an hour a month to give. And you think to yourself, what's an hour? What difference does that make? I want you to know that Even an hour can make a lot of difference to the person who receives your care. An hour makes a difference. Give what you have. Maybe you don't have a couple dollars. Maybe you don't even have an an hour. But maybe you have a prayer. Maybe you have a prayer. Offer your prayers. We have no idea what Jesus does does with our prayers when we offer them in faith. But we know that he hears them and he acts on them. One day, we're going to see what Jesus did with all the prayers that we've offered. Our prayers make a huge difference in the world. So offer the prayers that you have. Maybe what you have is a greeting, a word of encouragement, a hug, 
to give to someone. Oh, there are a bunch of us here at Journey who volunteer at Belmont Street Community School. We, we read to children each week. And I, I read to three children, three kids each week uh, in, a, in a kindergarten class. And the thing that, that shocks me every week is I walk into that school, I walk into that classroom, and I greet the kids. And through the course of the morning, there's seven or eight kids who walk up to me, just kind of out of the blue, they just get out of their chair, and they walk up to me, and they give me a hug. And they want me to hug them, so I hug them. There are kids in that classroom who are hungry for somebody to hug them. They're hungry for somebody to pay attention to to them, give them individual attention. They're just hungry for a hug. And I know that there are people in this church who have weeks that are like hell. And they come into church on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning and they're just hungry for somebody to say, I'm glad that you're here. They're hungry for somebody to give them a word of encouragement, to give them a hug. They're hungry. When we do that for one another, when we express love for one another, it matters. It really matters. So whether it's kids in a school or adults here or in our neighborhoods, places of work, our words of encouragement, our hugs, our greetings, they really matter. There's nothing small in the kingdom of God. A church without love is a church without Jesus. A church that isn't growing in love is a church that's not growing in Jesus. Love is a sign, it's a certain sign that the church belongs to Jesus. A church without love for Jesus, for one another, ceases to be Christ's church. It becomes a caricature of the church, a counterfeit, eventually becomes a casualty, it ceases to exist. A church without a heart of love breaks the heart of Jesus. Why? Because at his heart, God is love. God is love. Love is the mark of the Christian. Now Jesus closes his passage by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. What does it mean? To have ears to hear Jesus' word is to live differently because of what you have heard. Only the word of God applied is a word of God really heard. The book of Revelation was not written to satisfy our curiosities about the end of the world. That's not what it was for. It was written to teach us how to live while we wait for Jesus to return and restore the world. It was written to teach us how to live now, regardless of when 
the restoration of the world comes. And only those who hear and heed Jesus' world, word will be able to persevere to the end. If you don't hear and take, it, take to heart Jesus' word, then you miss out on the life of Jesus flowing in you and through you. You won't have what you need to persevere if you don't have Jesus working in and through you. You'll only have Jesus working in and through you if you're pursuing a life of love. That's what scripture says. That's what this passage is saying. Now at the beginning I said that as a church we're going to be spending seven weeks on these seven passages to the church, seven churches. We're trying to hear what Jesus is saying to those churches and trying to hear what Jesus is saying to us. I think what Jesus is saying through today's passage is that he wants to be a people of truth. He wants to be people who study and know and understand and live out the truths of the Bible. He wants to be people who endure in faith and in hope through whatever trials we may experience. But most of all, he wants to be a people who love. People who love God with our hearts and minds and souls and strength and who love our neighbors as ourselves. Who want for our neighbors what we want for ourselves. He wants to love people deeply and sacrificially. The Apostle Paul closes 1 Corinthians 13 by saying, and now these three, three, now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I'd like to invite you to do something. I'd like to invite you now and through the next seven weeks to commit yourself to a prayer, to an extra kind of time of prayer. I'd like you to be praying as we go through these passages week by week, praying that God would show us, all of us at church together, show us what God is really saying to these churches, what he wants us to hear through that. What is God saying to us? What is Jesus saying to us? Pray that God would give us all ears to hear in a particularly strong way in these next seven weeks. I'd also like you to, as, as you're praying that, if you sense that God is saying something to you about Journey Church, jot it down. You know, Pastor Tom, Paul, Liz, folks on the staff, folks on the Journey Council, we're trying to listen to what God's saying, and we hear things. We, get, we often get a sense for what God is saying to us, but we don't hear everything. And God doesn't only speak to pastors and church council members. He speaks to all the people of God. And we would love to hear, I would love to hear what you sense God saying to you about our church and where Jesus wants to take us. We take seriously the fact that Jesus speaks to you just like he speaks to us. So we're asking you to pray, we're asking you to listen, and I'm asking you to tell us what you think God is saying. We'll test it together, but we will hear it, okay? 
These three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, thank you that you are king. You are on your throne. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us and you've called us to love. Help us to do that. Fill us afresh with your love. Give us grace and strength and love to share. Lord, uh, reveal your love in and through us to everyone around us who needs it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.